hello and welcome to The View from the Lane, our Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. My name is Jack Pitbrook, I'm joined again today by James Moore and Charlie Eccleshare. Obviously it's been another pretty quiet week at Tottenham with no games. Charlie, can you tell us what's the latest on the discussions over the players' wages? Yeah, so that was the main story from last week. Um, David Ornstein and I reporting that as it stands, um, there are no plans from... Uh, Levy and the club's hierarchy to approach the players about deferrals and cuts until there's a bit more clarity about uh, well various things really but mainly you know when the season's going to start that kind of thing there are so many unknowns at the moment that uh, it's deemed prudent to to wait until we know a bit more about that um, you know before really getting those discussions going again so you know it's a basically across the board it's very comp- it's been such a complicated picture trying to get any sort of agreement on that so who knows when we'll have more clarity, but maybe this week we'll know a bit more about how feasible plans of playing at neutral grounds and that kind of thing are going to be. And then uh, imagine as and when there is more clarity, the discussions will be back on the table. And Charlie, elsewhere this week, you, you wrote a piece about Spurs' best partnerships. You had a slightly yeah. surprising top two, but tell us about it. Yeah, we're looking at this kind of best theme uh, for a few weeks and uh, yeah, looking at various different sort of subsections within that and yeah kick things off with partnerships uh and yeah the piece goes in on Berbatov and Keane who it's since 2000 as well um but yeah it went in on Berbatov and Keane who for me you know a a good partnership should be about being great in the sum of your parts and having chemistry and that kind of thing so they were the ones uh instantly jumped out at me so it introduces it by talking about them and then talks about various different other partnerships as well a lot of which come from the Pochettino era unsurprisingly so like Kane and Delhi, Alderweireld and Vertonghen which uh, a lot of people seem to like uh, Walker and Rose gave Dembele and Wanyama an honor- honourable mention I don't think they really played quite enough uh, to be up there with say like you know your Alderweireld and Vertonghen type partnerships uh, and then Pochettino and Levy as well as a slightly left field option uh, and then a few more from from a bit further back but yes, you know, hopefully um, started some debate. It certainly seemed to on my uh, Twitter feed. You didn't go with Anthony Gardner and uh, Gary Doherty in the end then? No, I was very tempted after after that recommendation from you, James. I mean, but, on, uh, honestly, there, there, was like, there was a month in the 2003-2004 in season when genuinely they were like a kind of cohesive defensive unit. Then it all kind of, it all kind of went wrong after that. But uh, honestly, for a very short period, they were very good. I was going to ask you, James, to come up with some more banter suggestions. I suggested uh, Nji and Nkudu, but I don't think they ever actually played together. No. Nkudu surely replaced Nji, didn't they? I think that was how that worked. Effectively, yeah, that's the problem, is that unfortunately we never got to see the two men on the same pitch. (laughs) Like ships in the night, it's just, yeah, just wasn't meant to be. Like Bale and Kane never really got to play together. Similar similar sort of dynamic. It's like... It's like 17 minutes, I think, maybe they overlapped or something like that, Bale and Kane. Mm. I think they're on the pitch at the same time. So, yeah, it is unfortunate that that uh, hasn't happened yet. Mm. What can we... Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's not scoop ourselves. Sorry. Um, can, we come up with any, <laughs> I mean, can we come up with any other good or bad Spurs partnerships beyond the ones in Charlie's excellent piece? Uh, well, I'm trying to think of some of the ones that I toyed with but didn't didn't include in the end. Defoe and Berbatov. In that first season that Berbatov was at Spurs, there was kind of a bit of rotation because there was Keane and, and Mido and Defoe and Berbatov. And Berbatov and Keane obviously became the partnership and they did really well. But there was a bit kind of in, in the autumn of that season 
where Berbatov and Defoe played quite a lot. And they looked mm. really, really good as a pairing. Oh, cool. I mean, I know, you know, Defoe probably isn't quite as keen, K-W-E-N, uh, on kind of herring around like a mad bastard like Robbie Keane does. But uh, they kind of did offset each other quite nicely. Uh, and, you know, Defoe's obviously a better finisher than Keane. And it just kind of felt like that, to me, even after Keane and Berbatov had kind of clicked, I, I still kind of had this kind of yearning to see more of Berbatov and Defoe, but unfortunately it just wasn't to be. Well, like in the same way that Mido and Keane had a really good understanding before Berbatov yeah, and Keane. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I mean, thought they really, that, that, they was really a, did. that was They were really good for for, the, for a spell. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it's great to have four centre-forwards as, as your options there. I mean, it's, it's a world away from where we are now, obviously. I mean, you probably could make an argument that Harry Kane was better than all four of them combined, but certainly in terms of their goal output. For you, James, what's the best Spurs strike partnership you've seen? I mean, if, you, if you're going... I mean, obviously, Charlie's remit was just the 21st century, but if you go back yeah, to, yeah. back into the 90s, um, I mean, clearly sharing... Uh, Klinsman were were superb, and as a, as a young fan, then as I was, yeah, uh, that was that was particularly inspiring. On the kind of, on a similar vein to, um, or in a similar vein to uh, Gardner and Doherty, Ant and Doc, um, there, there was a very brief window where Chris Armstrong and Stephen Everson were like a, a really good partnership as well. Like in it would have been nineteen ninety thousand, so it probably would have just been at the start of the century. Um, and they both kind of scored like 15, 16 goals in the league in the season, which, you know, given Spurs were mid-table trash at the time, is a pretty decent return. There was a game against Southampton where I think they scored six between them. Uh, no, five, Armstrong and Sheringham were good as well for a pick. Yeah, for but the first, the, first season, season. yeah the first season Armstrong was there. I think they, yeah, they probably both scored sort of 15, 20 as well. Mm. So, yeah, Chris Armstrong, again, you know, he's the, he's the pivot. There was some debate actually on a Q&A I did recently on um, kind of disappointing Spurs signings and that caused a bit of a stir. I came to Chris Armstrong's defence because I thought, you know, he had, he had a bunch of quite good seasons. Yeah, he, he was very, very good in that first season and then had a lot of injuries in 96, 97 as pretty much everyone in the squad did. It took him a couple of years to kind of click back in and, you know, he, like I say, he had this season 99-2000 which maybe was actually his last year there. Um, where he formed this partnership with Everton and they both did quite well. But yeah, I think I think kind of underwhelming for sort of three or four years in between didn't really do him any favours. Excellent. I think it's it's a really fun piece. You can read that on The Athletic. If you're not a subscriber to The Athletic, you can get a free 90-day trial for everything on the website if you go to theathletic.com forward slash SpursPod. Now, one, one other story that, James, you said you're working on at the moment is about the famous uh, Harry Redknapp soaked with a big bucket of ice game. Yeah. Is that yeah. right? Um, so, that was... if you're listening to this podcast on the day it comes out, it will be 10 years to the day since Spurs won 1-0 at Man City and secured Champions League football for the first time. Um, so, the, the piece I've written, uh, and we'll pretend I have actually finished it off at the time of recording this, I haven't, and I'm going to be in big trouble. Um it is Tottenham's best Premier League matches uh, of the last 20 years. Um, how you define best may be slightly different to how I define best, but I'd say it's kind of a mix of you know, the context, the performance, the kind of wow factor that you get with certain results. Um, and I think, I think that match, 
without that's probably the sliding doors moment for Spurs really I think without without that match without getting into the Champions League in 2010 I think Spurs would 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 have lost Modric far more quickly Gareth Bale who, who we're going to talk about in a minute I mean you know his whole career trajectory may have been completely different you know you don't, you don't know what would have happened to some of those other players who developed having played in the Champions League in that season and learned so much so yeah, it's kind of easy to imagine that the entire history of a club could have gone very differently had Spurs lost that game rather than won. Uh, so for me, that that is the best and most important Premier League result that Spurs have had. But there will be a poll at the bottom of this piece for <laughs> readers to have their say. So if you do think it was um, a nil-nil draw uh, against... Oh God, I come to think of a crap result now that I can't put on my head. It's like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a nil-nil nil draw out. against Man City in 2000 or something like that. You know, uh, fine. <laughs> And of course, it sits roughly, um, basically halfway through the Enoch Daniel Levy era at Tottenham, doesn't it? Ten years out of twenty through, and obviously it's set up, like you say, it's set up so much in the second half of the decade. If you, I mean, like it's not, it's kind of very speculative. This, but can you can you guess what the last ten years would have looked like without that Champions League football? It is really hard to say, isn't it? I mean, that was quite a transformative thing for the club. I think certainly in terms of the profile. I mean, it's hard to imagine, you know, like they wouldn't have been able to sign a player like Van der Vaart in 2010 had they not disqualified for the Champions League. And then subsequent to that, you know, players like Galas and Adebayor coming in, you know, experienced players who had been around the block, maybe it would have been difficult for them to come in as well. I mean, it's not like Spurs went out and spent a, a shed load of money in that first summer, um, much to the frustration of the fans at the time. You know, without that, I, I just I just find it hard to see that everything else would have kind of clicked into place in quite the same way. Of I suppose, you know, on the other hand, you could kind of make an argument that there were a lot of good academy players coming through that perhaps would have even got, you know, would have got more of a chance. We might have seen Harry Kane in the team at 19 rather than 21, 22, and then maybe, you know, he would have scored another 50 Premier League goals by now. Who knows? It's fun looking back on that because as a Manchester City fan, that... That game is hugely memorable and it felt like two teams, City and Spurs, who were really on the cusp of something. And yeah. then it felt at the time as if whoever won that game was going to unlock years of success and prosperity. Now, of course, the reality is that City's spending power meant that eventually they you know, they got to the Champions League one season later and they won the FA Cup that year, the following year and then they won the Premier League the year after that. So it's not like they had to wait that long. But at the time, it felt like a hugely consequential result um, for both clubs, and also one that seemed to like reward Tottenham for their probably slightly more enterprising and exciting style of play over the course of that season. Like that Crouch goal is very famous, but it seemed like the whole Spurs team seemed pretty, you know, uh, well balanced by that point. Would you say that was the like as well as they played under Harry Redknapp? Uh, up to that, that point, I'd say certainly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, that. Despite that City team being nowhere near the level of a team that won the title or, or anything that's kind of happened or anything that's kind of come subsequent to that, it was still a very good side. And, you know, there are players like, I was like you, you'll know the team better than me, but, you know, Tevez was in there. Robinho was still kind of knocking around, right? And, there, you know, Vieira was there then, wasn't he, I think? Who, yeah, who else would yeah. have been in that team? I can't really think now. Zabaleta uh, was there already, wasn't he? Yeah, company. Zabaleta. Yeah, company. Um, it was just, just, just before Hart took over. Hart was... Hart took over at the start oh, yeah. of the 10-11 season. Uh, Wayne Bridge, Craig Bellamy, Nigel de Jong, Shea Given, uh, Les Scott was there in 2000, from 2009, Adebayor, mm. Rocky Santa Cruz, Sean Wright Phillips. Colo Torre. I mean, in Polo. the context of what, what we've seen from Man City in the 10 years since, that does sound like a kind of bang average team. But I mean, 
you know, in the Premier League in 2010, that, you know, that was a decent side. It's easy to look at those players and kind of think of them as they were in like 2015 or something. But, you know, players like Lescott, like top yeah. Premier League players at that point. Yeah, so City were very much in the um, buy good players from our near rivals stage, which is very expensive, but does, you know, it gets you to a certain level while also making your rivals worse. Um, but yeah, that was a perfectly functional City team, if not if nothing exciting. Anyway, what we're really going to talk about today is Gareth Bale, who at this point in May 2010 was basically in the process of going from a kind of promising young player into a seriously good player. Um, and the next stage, see this, this segue is just about going to hold together. The next stage of his evolution, I think, was the famous goal at the Britannia Stadium at the start of the 2010-11 season. Charlie, this is something you've written about. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, this was part of our Greatest Goals series, and I put this as number two. Um, and, yeah, the con- the context for this, so Bale, I mean, he he joined in 2007, and he was a bit of a punchline for the first couple of years. There was this thing where he couldn't win a game. I think it was 24 Premier League games. Uh, he didn't win his first. He didn't win his first 24 Premier League games for Spurs, and it actually took him coming on as a late sub against Burnley at home in I think a five nil win. James, is that right? Correct. Five nil. Yeah. Uh, yeah. To sort of get a to kind of charitable. <laughs> yeah, a kind of charitable. He's finally won a game, um, and the view. Up until really the second half of the 2009-10 season was that he was a bit soft, he was injury prone. And it's really interesting reading back. Uh, so for the piece, I spoke to Harry Redknapp, who was the manager at the time. Um, and we were remembering that when... So Bale finished the second half of the 2009-10 season really strongly. He scored against Arsenal and Chelsea within the space of a few days uh, in that April in the run-in, which really helped them get the Champions League place that we've just been talking about. Uh, and then he scored on the last day of the season against Burnley. And then the first day of the following season, 10-11, you'll remember this, Jack, Spurs and City played out a nil-nil draw. And Bale was electric, especially in the first half. It just looked like, you know, almost unstoppable. And then you come to this Stoke game and he scores one, which is a bit fluke. The ball kind of flies in off him. But then he scores this unbelievable volley. I mean, just one of those, you just can't believe your eyes really I mean it really is one of the best goals uh, you'll see about I mean I'm sure you've all seen it but it's like shoulder high almost and he just catches it perfectly and after the game it was very much heralded as this this player's arrival that gone is the young shy uh, maybe slightly homesick injury prone player and what has arrived is this specimen who having been thought of as a left back uh, is now more of a winger and just looks like being absolutely devastating and so that really catapulted him Um, and then obviously not long after is the Inter Milan game uh, where he scores a hat-trick and then the return game where he absolutely destroys Mykon in the taxi for Mykon game uh, and lays on a few assists but it was this um that kind of catapulted him to more of an outside audience. I mean, it's interesting, James, you, you'll be able to say like how much at this point within Spurs, the, the time of that Stoke goal, which was August 2010, people were already thinking of him as being this incredible player and how much it kind of caught some of them by surprise a little bit as well. Um, I mean, when, when he first signed, and you have to bear in mind, I think he had just turned 18 when he signed in sort of May or June 20, uh, 2007. 
that there was like such high expectations. It was seen as a real a real coup for Spurs to sign him ahead of like Manchester United and whoever else. So there was kind of there was kind of an expectation that he was going to be special even then before he'd played a game. Um, he got he scored I think quite early on in that first season away at Fulham. Yeah. Um, and, and was kind of involved quite a lot in the early. He scored against Arsenal actually as well in a game that Spurs ultimately lost. A fr- like a quite the clever free, free kick. kick, a low free kick. Yeah. Well, interesting as well. Just before you got like I was looking at his goals for Southampton. I think he scored five. Four of them were free kicks, and one of his two Wales goals. This is before joining Spurs with free kicks. Like he was seen as a real free kick yeah. set piece yeah. specialist, and obviously he maintained that, but he became so much more than that as well. Yeah, exactly. So he'd kind he'd kind of already had a had a, had a reputation. Yeah, and he got injured in that first season and missed, you know, a, a large chunk of it, including the League Cup final that Spurs won against Chelsea. Came back into the team at the start of the following season when Spurs infamously got two points in the first eight games. Uh, although in that time, I remember him having a very good game away at Chelsea in a game that Spurs drew 1-1. It, it was actually kind of like a kind of foreshadowing of the kind of performance you saw from him a couple of years further down the line. He was like bombing up and down the left wing the whole game. Looks really strong and powerful. Like was really good at holding on to the ball, um, and yeah. So I think he was, in a way, he was a bit unlucky that he just missed all the games at Spurs one over like a kind of two and a half year period. Mm. It's ludicrous, really. It wasn't like he was playing badly. It was just, you know, he had had the injuries and then kind of fell out of favour under under Harry Redknapp until, as you say, kind of second half of that 2009-10 season. Uh, but in that, and I in think that it week, took. It, is it right it took Asuakoto being injured or being at the Nations uh, Cup for uh, him I to get his uh, chance? Yeah, there was, I think, so Modric got injured. So Modric had been playing on the left wing for the first kind of maybe year under Redknapp quite, quite often. And I think it might have been Modric getting injured. I think he kind of had like a kind of hairline fracture of his leg in a challenge from Lee Bowyer, maybe. I think it was against Birmingham. Um, so Bo- uh, Modric came out of a team and things kind of got shifted around and Bale ended up playing after that. I think that might be when he ended up playing on the wing. Um, but yeah, you're right. It was kind of a bit fortuitous that he ended up kind of playing regularly towards you know, the kind of middle point of that season, the second half. But am I right in thinking that for most of the the 2010-11 season, as well as Bale did, he was generally that year still playing as like an orthodox left winger? So the Stoke game, both Inter games, all the stuff that yeah. he's, most, he's most famous yeah. for, he was still like an old-fashioned sort of player in the guessing the kind of like yeah, get around the gig, outside gigs of the mold you mm. know what i mean like yeah i mean i'd say 90s gigs yeah I, I, I'd, yeah I'd say almost an early 90s gig like properly like yes, all about yes, the pace yes, yes. going around the outside of the fullback and uh, you know for me I, I don't know if this sounds ludicrous or not uh, bale's performance in the home game against inter where he set up the, the the two goals in the second half was better than the performance um, in the San Siro, we scored a hat trick. Just he was just it was uh, you know a Mycon again, a similar thing to what we were saying about people like Lescott. At that point, Mycon was maybe the best right back in the world. You know he mm. was incredible. And Bale absolutely just destroyed him, absolutely destroyed him, like constantly through the game. It was like absolutely tearing him to shreds. I mean, no, I agree. I, I, th- I, I think that's right. Like, and you watch some of the clips back from that game, and it, it genuinely defies belief how quick Bale is, and how yeah. like how far ahead of him he's able to hit the ball and know that he can still get there ahead of a Mikon and b the covering defender, which is normally why you can't do that. Yeah, I, and I think most people that were there that night would would agree with this. So that that was like. The, be- the best night that they've had at White Hart Lane. That, that like, you know, and again, it's a similar thing. Inter were the European champions at the time. You have to remember that. They were 
They were one of the top sides in Europe and Spurs were just not expected to get anywhere near them and they absolutely destroyed them. And also like the Bale, the hat trick at the San Siro, as amazing as it was, you know, was in a game which they were expected to lose in which they were 4-0 down. Like obviously it would have been amazing if they'd rescued a point, but it was kind of a free swing. Whereas yeah. this, whereas the game at White Hart Lane was, you know, that was the game that Spurs really needed to win. And there was, a lot, in a sense, there was more pressure on them in that home game than there was in the when he scored the hat trick. And the hat trick element had a slight freakish element to it, didn't it? They were all so late when the game was done. I mean, they were four 0 down, and yeah, it, it yeah. I think like the last two goals were both kind of after eighty-five minutes as well. I think. Yeah. yeah. So let's move chronologically on to 2011-12. Now, as far as I remember, it's the, this was the season where Bale went from being this amazing amazing left winger into being something a little bit more new and different. When he yeah. start, you know, we started to see him playing through the middle. The game that stands out in my mind, I mean, there's there's plenty, but the the one that sprang to my mind when I was doing my research earlier was Norwich City away halfway through mm. the season where he played through the middle, he scored twice, the second of which was a great uh, run right down the middle of the pitch early in the second half, and after at the end of which he dinks it over the keeper, I imagine, I think it was John Ruddy. Um, and he just seemed to be like, you know, there, were, there became this debate about whether or not he was going to play on the wing or play through the middle, but it just seemed like he was moving beyond that that kind of pigeonholing at the start of his career or moving beyond that that kind of position on the left into becoming a, a player who was more complete and more dangerous and more novel. To me, it felt reminiscent of Cristiano Ronaldo at the time. His evolution, again, from being uh, a winger, first and foremost, to being someone who would play central and could would, you know could do everything. Because like Ronaldo, Bell started being able to score goals with his head really impressively, he scored some really good headers, and with his right foot. So he was so complete, you just didn't want to box him to one position but I remember James I mean there was lots of chanting of Gareth Bale who plays on the left I mean it was still yeah. it was still divisive wasn't it well I think I think if you went back through my tweets from that season you would find some rather scathing comments about Harry Redknapp <laughs> playing uh, Bale on the uh, it, so it was a game at Goodison that Spurs lost 1-0 that Bale played on the right and then and played on the left um, and yeah you're right you know, in the away end people were, were singing Gareth Bale he plays on the left and uh, but, you know, uh, for, for all the kind of perceptions that people have about Harry Redknapp not being particularly advanced tactically, you kind of have to look at that and say, well, he, he clearly spotted something there that that was sl- and maybe ever so slightly ahead of its time and also that, that nobody else really had kind of been clamouring for, I don't think. I don't remember that seeing That even James anyone. Moore hadn't spotted in the stands. But yeah, exactly. You've got to be good. like me. <laughs> exactly. It seems... It seems, I mean, it seems amazing in retrospect that Spurs fans would feel that way. Like this guy, you know, you're watching this evolution, this player into one of the best players that Britain has produced for, in his generation, and you're kind of desperately saying, "No, like, don't let him change. Well, Keep him in his pigeonhole." Uh, okay, it's, well, it's like, no, well, it's like no, people no, 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 booing no, 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 when no. Dylan went electric. No, no, no. <laughs> let, let me. Important context to that is that this was happening at the point that Spurs' season like completely fell apart. And Aaron Lennon was rubbish on the left, by the way. Which, you know, he had to kind of factor that right, in as well. Yeah. For, for Gareth Bale, it was fine. But from a team, it, it wasn't really working as well. For, for Gareth Bale on an individual level, it kind of seemed to, it kind of all kind of, kind of seemed to click into place. But for Lennon and somebody other players, it didn't feel quite right. Um, and yeah, this was at the point that, uh, if you remember, you know, Harry uh, Redknapp had been successful in his court case and the England job kind of came up. And suddenly there was all kind of uncertainty about what his future was be. 
Uh, and Spurs just completely hit a brick wall and lost, you know, that game at Everton, a, a game at Arsenal that I hesitate to mention that they were 2-0 up and lost 5-2. Um, you know, Drew at home to uh, Stoke as well. I think yeah. After. And it all, you know, uh, lost. I think they lost the game to Manchester United at home and it was just this, like kind of horror and everything kind of seemed to, uh, you know, is it around that time that the Moamba thing happened in that cup game and it just felt like everything suddenly was just like really horrible. Um, and, you know, the atmosphere just kind of went quite sour quite quickly, having for the first two thirds of the season looked you know, like everyone was as happy as they'd ever been watching Spurs and the team looked amazing. And suddenly it all kind of unraveled quite quickly and I think fans were just kind of a bit restless that this thing had changed and it wasn't working quite as well as it had been in the first kind of two thirds of the season. So I think that that is important to kind of bear that in mind. Uh, when you're questioning Spurs fans, Jack. Very important. <laughs> that is helpful context. And to be fair, Bale only scored three league goals after New Year's Day. In, that is in the second half of the 2011-12 season, although he did get two in the FA Cup. But let's move on to what I think is really the big the big step up, and that is the replacement of Harry Redknapp with Andre Villas-Boas in the summer of 2012, and then... Really, this this start of unprecedentedly good football from Gareth Bale through the 2012-13 season. Yeah, well, well I guess this kind of felt like AVB came into the club over the summer, looked looked at the way Bale had played in the second half of that season and kind of built his team slightly more with that in mind. Whereas I think Redknapp had kind of put a team together with the fullbacks and whatever else with a view to Bale playing on the left and then flipped it. It kind of seemed more like Villas-Boas had come in and, and realised that was the way it needed to work and that he could build his team in that way. Gilfie Sigurdsson came in in that summer in midfield, which obviously helped having someone else who could kind of be a bit more flexible in terms of their positioning. Um, you know, Kyle Walker was playing far more regularly at that point. Obviously, you want like a kind of overlapping fullback if you're going to have a right winger who's going to cut inside like that. Um, so, yeah, it kind of felt like things kind of slotted together more naturally. Uh uh, but you know that said, I don't think uh, from memory, I don't think Bale kind of flew out of the trap. And Spurs certainly didn't as a team. I'm not sure he scored his first goal for a month or so into the season. Um, yeah. And it was really when he scored that incredible goal at Old Trafford when Spurs won three two. Uh, I mean, that's kind of like his, almost his trademark goal, isn't it? It's a bit like one of those goals he scored at Norwich. Actually, he picked the ball up so deep and just ran with such pace and power. Um, you know, I think it was Roy Ferdinand. I mean, he absolutely destroyed yeah. him. Just kind of went round the outside of him and then clipped the ball back across the hair. It's an incredible goal. And his from right there, foot as well, that thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that doesn't really get. Met. He's got a lot of goals with his right foot as well. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It wasn't just always cutting in from the right on his left. Sometimes he no, he really, really right developed too. that. Yeah. I was watching. I was. I watched all those goals earlier today, and I thought exactly that. I thought for you know for. For a left-footed specialist, I'm shocked by how many goals he scores with his right. And also, like, really good goals as well. Like, United, there was one from the edge of the box against Norwich in the League Cup, I think. There was one at the Emirates Arsenal, 20 yards. Yeah. What, what like, I noticed generally... watching that video is he had, like, a really good habit of sort of, like, not necessarily hitting the ball particularly cleanly. But, you know, in the way you say of a, like a, of a great striker, mm. that they kind of hit, they kind of scuff the ball a little bit sometimes and it makes it more difficult for the keeper. But a lot of the goals that Bale scored in that season were ones that he kind of like, you know, topped into the ground a little bit and they kind of bobbled off to what, like, to one like side that Reading goal, which is his first yeah. goal of the season yeah, for exactly. Spurs, when it's pulled back yeah. and he kind of double hits it into the ground and it bobbles in on yeah, his right foot. Yeah. And one of the ones at Villa in the hat trick that he got over Christmas, I think, was like as well, kind mm-hmm. of hit the ball slightly awkwardly and the keeper just had no chance because it, it kind of it deviated so much. 
I think Pilot's taking it early as well. It does. Yeah. Sometimes if you do take it early like he did, I think there's one at West Ham where he's kind of at home and he's falling to the ground and he kind of flicks it as he's falling and the keeper's just completely uh, befuddled by it. But I mean, they're the kind of goals that you expect Harry Kane to score. Mm. Yeah, Yeah. like Kane at Leicester this this season. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's what I mean about Ronaldo. He just became like this goal machine and was scoring left foot, right foot. He scored some really nice headers as well. Um, he just suddenly appeared this absolute machine, so complete, could kind of do I mean, everything. I'm assuming we've all watched the same video, probably, but the, the, the header that he scored at Southampton, Gareth Yes, Bale, exactly. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, almost like the corner, it's almost at the corner of the penalty area. Yeah, Southampton yeah. away, yeah. Where, he, where he famously um, invented the muted celebration. If you I was going to say, mm-hmm. I, it was I, the first, I, I, it was I the first time that. someone acknowledged it. He did like I, a really I, over the top sort of, you know, yeah. flat palm gesture and then tweeted that, hashtag muted celebration after the game. Did that's he? so funny because yeah. I, I watched that and I was like, God, that's a real tour de force and really how to do an ostentatious, I'm not celebrating celebration. That struck me as well was just the sheer, the sheer range of types of goal. There was that header you mentioned, Southampton is like a Ronaldo header and it's clearly taken surprise everyone else who's around him. You've got there's plenty of his right foot. There's plenty of like Arjen Robin type goals where he comes yeah. in and smashes it with his left. Yeah. But some of which are ridiculous. The Southampton is ridiculous. Sunderland, Swansea, Sunderland. Uh, West Brom. Like, there's so many incredible hits. And then there's ones where he runs very, very quickly just down the middle of the pitch. Like, there's one at Norwich where Alex Tessie tries to run into him and Bale somehow stays on his feet and then smashes it in the top corner. And then there's about five or six free kicks. Like, it's just... Yeah. And the free kicks are all different types of free kicks as well. Like, there's... There's like a one against Leon, which is from about 40 metres away. There's one against Liverpool, which swerves and beats Pepe Reina. There's ones that go up and over the wall. Like, it, it really is the full gamut, like the full range of types of goal. It's incredible. He scores two free kicks in a game against Leon, doesn't he? Yeah, Leon's yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. rare to do that. One, one at the end, that. one with the last kick of the first half, the other with yeah. the last kick of the second half. It was, by that point, because I remember I was doing, I was covering that game for the Indy, and I remember thinking like, this is just the most insane thing I've ever seen. Like this whole run mm. of form. And by then, like there was no sense of surprise or anything because every single game you'd go into it thinking, what on earth is Bale going to do here? Because he is producing game after game after game, like new levels of spectacular football. And I think he just, I think he'd gone on a run where it was like Norwich where he'd scored a great goal, West Brom where he'd scored a great goal, cutting inside and smashing it, Newcastle where he'd scored two, one a free kick, one just racing down the middle and beating Colicini. And then Leon two two brilliant free kicks and the next game after that I think was West Ham where he scored what is maybe his best goal of all of that run yeah, that, that's take. definitely my mm. favourite that's definitely my favourite and, and you know mainly because it's against West Ham in the last minute but like just to, just to spot that like Jaskalainen is just that little bit off his line that little bit flat footed and then like the 92nd minute of the game to just kind of have the composure just to like you know just flick the ball out of his left foot and then just hit like across the goalkeeper and into the top corner it's incredible I mean, that's the thing as well. They, that goal, and there are so many others in that run-in where they are massive, massive goals, you know, last-minute winners. Those Southampton, yeah. Sunderland, both late on. I mean, Southampton, I remember that, I think that's like the 86th minute, and, and you're just as they're thinking they've held on. He gets on the right, cuts in, unstoppable. That's Iron Robin type. And yeah. Sunderland, 89th, does the same thing last day of the season. The, West, the week after West Ham, he scores against Arsenal. The midweek after that, he scores a header against Inter. You know, a couple mm. of weeks later, he scores an amazing goal at Swansea and sets up a really good Vertonghen goal in that game as well. Great goal against Man City after that. 
one I think that went in kind of off his ass against Wigan, maybe. And yeah, yeah but even so that is actually like quite impressive uh, athleticism. He gets his leg up so high. Yeah, it looks yeah, like, he a does, pro- that's true. like a proper kick. I also loved watching that, remembering that Wigan team. Like they would do those sort of comedy capers far too often. Uh, what was your favourite? Do you have a favourite Gareth Bale goal of this season? I, I think the Stoke one is probably my favourite um, of, of all. I think it's just such an extraordinary piece of execution. I think this, for this season, either that Southampton or Sunderland, I really like just because of how much they seem to typify that, you know, just sod it, grab in game, I scruff the neck, I'm just going to cut inside and score a worldie. Um, and just how easy he made that look and how unstoppable he felt uh, when he did that. My other favourite, other than that West Ham one, would be from the Man City game the previous season. I mean, it's actually kind of a similar goal. He picked the ball up to the left of goal and hits it with his left foot across the keeper and into the like across the keeper into the top right hand corner. Um, in that game that I know you'll remember, Jack, as the as the game where Man City should have had two players sent off and Spurs probably should have won. But you know, we, we oh, do you mean the that. game where the game where City won it right at the end? The Balotelli that, penalty. Is that the game where Balotelli Scott Parker penalty. headbutted Balotelli's foot? <laughs> yeah, that, that's right, yeah. And where Tony yeah. and Lescott like, did a forearm smash in Eunice Cabal's face. And Defoe missed a guilt-edged chance from a bail cross. I think. Oh, it's, in- it's interesting, actually, that, Charlie, because my, my theory on that, I, and I haven't seen this chance probably for eight years, but my theory at the time was that Bale had, had mishit that cross. Or he'd hit it too far ahead or too far ahead of Defoe. I can't really remember now, but I very much remember thinking... Yeah. But Bale was to blame if anyone was there. Mm. But it was a great goal from Bale in that game. Just because yeah, it was incredible. It was so, incredible. And what I love about those is, again, it's just the variety. It's like there's so many of these goals where Bale absolutely thumps it. But then this is one where it's just pure placement. It's pure placement Yeah, it just caresses it, yeah. But also, yeah, yeah, that's a really unusual hit because he hits that from the left, doesn't he? So he's kind of whipping it. It's not like yeah. a... You, you, that would almost be an easier technique if you're coming onto it from the right and you can curl it into the top corner, but he's whipping it from left to right. It's just a ridiculous technique. Yeah, against probably the best keeper in the league at that point in heart, I'd yeah. say. I'd get, yeah. Though was that yeah, the yeah. side he can dive to? <laughs> yeah, good point. <laughs> yeah, it was, wasn't it? Because Hart was diving to his right. Hart's well, diving, 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 diving to his left. Who, yeah, Hart's he diving to his left. It goes over him, doesn't it? But he's not like yeah, far off his line. He's like kind of two or three yards off his line. But it's obvious, it's obvious that Hart was not expecting the ball to be whipped back over his head like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Which is what makes it so cool. So I was thinking earlier, and what I really love about Bale in this era is that, I mean, it does feel like a very different era of football in the sense that nowadays in the Premier League, the best players are basically very high-functioning cogs in the machine of their team. So whether it's like De Bruyne and Sterling at City or Salah and Mane and Van Dijk, is they're all guys who perfectly executes what their manager wants them to do but also which and they're brilliant at it but it means that they're kind of ultimately subservient to the machine whereas what I loved about this this kind of era of football and, and beforehand is that you had brilliant players who would basically like transcend their team so whether it was Bale is the best example but Suarez at Liverpool arguably or uh, Ben Arthur maybe at Newcastle or Van Persie at Arsenal to be honest and like their achievements were like they would you know they were not going out there with managerial instructions so to speak but they were doing things which were spontaneous and individualistic rather than like pre-programmed or mechanical 
and that gave them this kind of like like you were saying charlie this kind of like seizing the game by the scruff of the neck and this kind of like comic book energy just mm. to, just in the way that they would decide games by themselves and that was that is so much more exciting to watch i think than like Salah or De Bruyne like just ruthlessly executing their manager's plans it's really fun and that's what I kind of miss about this era of football but I guess you could look at that and say well De Bruyne and Sterling have won the Premier League with Man City and Mane and Salah and Van Dijk and whoever else are going to win the Premier League with Liverpool and obviously Gareth Bale didn't win the Premier League with Spurs so perhaps you kind of argue that that (laughs) <laughs> that that's the problem with that policy it's not a recipe for winning but it's bloody exciting to watch oh yeah absolutely yeah but yeah i definitely think that's its shortcoming yeah but yeah. i just think nowadays in the premier league like the best teams are the most organized teams they're like city and liverpool and i'm not saying they couldn't i'm not saying they couldn't like accommodate like bail 2012 13 because i bet they could but i just think it was a slightly you know, this was ultimately a slightly more individualistic era than what we have nowadays. But it does actually bring mm. bring me on to a question I wanted to ask you guys, which is, since Bale left, Spurs have obviously become a lot better, like by any reasonable measure, uh, under Pochettino. Do you think Bale would have worked under Pochettino, or do you think he was too individualistic? I don't think Poch would have felt comfortable playing in this way, this sort of lawless way that you're talking about, Jack, where you do just... Uh, you leave it to chance to a degree and hope with the degree of um, expectation that Bale will kind of rescue you. Um, so I think he would have had to have adapted, but he, he to me is definitely a good enough player to have done that. And I think he could have, he, he, he's so good. He, he could have, they could have made it work together. I'd be interested to see whether his position would have evolved again, whether he would have basically just become the centre forward of the team and everything mm. else would have kind of been built in behind him. But yeah, you're right. I mean, I don't, I don't really see him being a, the kind of guy who's going to kind of harry and press defenders in the way that Pochettino wanted his attacking players to do in the first couple of years he was dispersed. Certainly. Yeah, it's it's. I think that's probably where it falls down for me. Is that I can see like, I think on the pitch, I can I can kind of see it working. Like I think Poch would have somehow got he would he would have found a balance. Whereas off the pitch, you think well, how much would have Pochettino's very like you know, authoritative, I'm the boss, it's my way or go away. Like, his approach... Like, would Pochettino's approach would have worked with a player who, you know, in 2014 was third best player in the world? And even if he had stayed at Tottenham, would have been on, like, you know, on massive money. Could that have... Or does Pochettino's football always require a sort of lower lower level of player to work? One of them would have had to have adapted, and that's where maybe they would have come into conflict. Maybe... Pochettino would have come in and not wanted to be so subservient to one player and so would have insisted on playing his way and Bale wouldn't have liked that so would have left or Pochettino would have had to come in and slightly sacrifice some of his principles I I can't really imagine him doing that just because he is so principled and he feels so strongly so I think it would have been more Bale would have had to have adapted and then it would have come down to whether he would have wanted to you know would he would he want to play in that way that very demanding draining way that is brilliantly rewarding for some but it's not everyone's cup of tea but I, I guess we, we can't know that but I think that would have been the challenge but I, as yeah, I said I, I think Bell is just such a good player that you the temptation would always be to try and get the best out of him because if you do the ceiling for, for your team is very very high because Bale is just such a ludicrously talented player I, I kind of feel like you'd either you'd either have got like a, a watered down version of Gareth Bale for the reasons that, uh, that that Charlie mentions there, that if Pochettino wants Bell to fit into his way of playing, then 
he's not going to be as explosive as he was in, in 12-13. Or um, you're going to play Bale as a centre-forward and you're not going to see Harry Kane. I don't, I don't really feel like you're going to get the best out of both those players in one team. Where do you think Bale stands? If you were to do a kind of great individual Spurs players of the last 30 years, let's say the Premier League era, so you've got Klinsmann, Ginola, Modric, Kane, Bale... Where does where does Bale sit? One objective measure you can use is winning the PFA Player of the Year award, which uh, Bale did twice. Uh, obviously, Ginola did it once. Um, of, of those players you mentioned, so I mean that's that's obviously just one you could say fairly arbitrary metric for it. But I do think you know this was someone who was clearly extremely respected by his peers and you know his performance transcended um you know club loyalties and whatever he was objectively an absolutely outstanding player he was the best player in the league for two out of three years so i would put him right right up there for individual performances and i think it's the probably the best individual season that 12-13 one i mean his output how many important goals he scored uh, was just extraordinary, really. I've got to say, if you and I know we've all watched this video of all of Bale's goals, watch your video of all of Harry Kane's goals, and a lot of the stuff we've said about Bale, like the range of goals and the incredible pace and power and finishing and whatever else, all of that stuff applies to Harry Kane as well. Harry Kane is a better player than Gareth Bale. I genuinely believe that. Pete Harry Kane and Pete Gareth Bale, Pete Harry Kane is better. Wow. Do you think he's had one season uh, where where you could say he's had a better season than that twelve thirteen? Yeah, and I mean I know 16, he's had loads. Sixteen seventeen, we've got like forty one or forty two goals. Something, wasn't mm. it? I mean, in all comps, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean that's very simple mathematics, but I mean his performances in that season were incredible for two seasons, really. I mean, well, longer than that, but in particular in those two seasons, sixteen seventeen and seventeen eighteen. He's got an incredible number of goals. Yeah, 16-17, not that I've just looked this up. 16-17, <laughs> 35 goals, 17-18, 41 goals. I mean, they're incredible numbers by anyone's standards, right? That's a really Absolutely. interesting take. I, I mean, know. I guess you, if you were Bale, you'd say you know he wasn't a centre-forward, so you're not quite uh, comparing like for like. No, but I mean, I, I, I wouldn't say Kane's contribution to the team was entirely restricted to the goals, no. though, right? Well, I don't know where I... That's a really interesting one. I don't know where I stand on that. I, there's a video There's I, a video of Harry Kane's passing yeah. in a game at Watford. I don't know if you've ever seen this. I think it's 17-18. It's an away game at Watford and somebody's passing. Like He, he drops off... At Spurs go down, I think Sanchez got sent off and Spurs went down to 10 men. And Kane basically kind of dropped into midfield. And some of the passes he was spraying around were insane. His passing is so good. Like massively yeah, underrated. Yeah, his passing is amazing. His passing is brilliant. There's that one last season at Liverpool for the, I think it's for the equaliser. He's, he's getting fouled and he pings one out uh, as a free kick. It's absolutely amazing. Incredible technique. I guess like there's part of me, and this is going to sound very, very basic and like YouTube fan, that just thinks that like what Bale did was routinely harder. It was harder and more spectacular and more surprising. And that makes it in some sense more valuable than what Kane does. Because Kane, for me, Kane is more, maybe this is just maybe I've got this wrong, but for me, Kane is more about like efficiency and ruthlessness and, you know, like mastering certain skills. Whereas Bale was about like doing stuff that you didn't think anybody could do on a football pitch. And for I mean, me, that's makes Bale maybe more exciting, slightly more exciting than Kane. 
Maybe, but I mean, I would like. It's not like Kane's like a box striker, is he? He's not. You know, he's not Gary Lineker. He's not scoring all his goals from no, within true. twelve yards. He's got an incredible number of goals from like the edge of the box. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of see the point you're making. I mean, Bale is clearly a more explosive player, but I think that's a slightly different thing. Yeah, I feel like this is a good topic for another podcast because we've been mm. talking for ages now. Um, but there's probably that's... so just one final thought on that, Jack, because I do I think that is an interesting point. I do think there is probably a relativity issue there that Bale was felt so elevated. Um, and I don't know if that should count in his favour or not, but maybe that's why sometimes Kane felt like a really, really important part of a very high-functioning team, whereas what made Bale stand out often was that he was doing these sublime things for a team that often was not functioning particularly well, and he would rescue them, uh, and that made it so, so exciting to watch in that Roy the Rovers kind of way. Yeah, that's really interesting, because it makes you think, well, if Kane was in a worse... If Ke- you know, if Bale was in a better team, would he have been better, or would he have just looked less good because he was standing out less? Um, I don't know the answer to that one. Anyway, Spurs fans, if you've got any opinions on peak Kane versus peak Bale, please tweet them to us, and we will uh, discuss it next time because um, it's a really interesting topic. Anyway, thank you very much, James and Charlie, for joining us. Uh, thank you, producer Tom. We'll be back next week. I don't know what we're going to talk about yet if you've got any ideas tweet us and we'll and we'll discuss it on air but otherwise we will see you next week Mm